Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. My name is Richard Diaz, and I'll be your host. What I hope to do is introduce you to some amazing athletes, luminaries from the sports science community, and as come to be expected, I'll also provide some highly opinionated rants on all aspects of endurance sport and my current favorite, obstacle course racing. So sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, and let's do this. Can you believe it? My goodness, this year has just blown by. 2016 was an amazing year. Here we are in December, heading up on Christmas. Holidays are on us, and I am just beside myself with excitement for the new year coming in 2017. All right, so here's the deal. I reached out again to social media and asked for some questions. And I got a ton of great questions from a lot of great people. And I'm going to try to touch on as many as I can over the next little bit here. So sit tight and let's see if we could touch on these things and get some answers out there for these fine folk. And incidentally, I am going to award someone for having given the best question with something pretty cool. You're going to find out what that is at the end of the show. And whoops, one more thing. Going into 2017, I am trying to set up our clinic calendar. So if you happen to think that you've got the juice to get us out to your neck of the woods, please reach out to me on social media. Hit me up on Facebook, uh, Natural Running Network, Richard Diaz's personal Facebook, Diaz Human Performance. I'm all over the place. Find me. Let me know where you live and whether you think you could pull it off or not. And if you want to know the details, I'd be happy to share them with you because we are looking to hit up lots of cities in 2017. Let's do this now. All right, so I'm going to try to address these questions in the order that they were given. All right, so here we go. Got a question from John Lynch. John Lynch has been out to see me, him and his beautiful wife, on many occasions to do some work. And so here's the question he had. He goes, I noticed that I tend to run midfoot, but favor the outside of the foot, pinky toe side. I think it's causing some additional strain on the outside of the leg. Is there a corrective drill to land more over the big toe side, or is that even important in the grand scheme of things? Okay, so here's the thing, John. What you're probably doing is you're pitching your foot ahead of your knee as you're trying to land on your midfoot. And in the course of doing so, it causes you to land on the outside of your foot. It's called the varus edge of your foot. Falling towards the pinky toe's varus, falling inward towards the big toe would be valgus. And on the varus side, what ends up happening is you're creating what's known as late-stage pronation, very common malady of runners, causes all sorts of trouble, and yes, you definitely want to land over the ball of your foot, more towards your great toe. I like to refer to this as the diving board. 
This is where the greatest force production comes off, and this is where you're strongest when you land. And the way to avoid that problem is you need to lead out with your knees more and have your foot drop beneath your knee and your posture posted as near your foot on ground contact as possible. This is going to solve all sorts of problems. So, once again, try not to allow your lower limb from the knee down to reach out ahead of your knee when you make ground contact. That will solve the problem. Okay, now I've got another question from Corrine Francis, and she asks, what is the best and most effective way to run uphill on uneven and rocky terrain? I notice with me, I put a lot of strain on my Achilles. Well, it sounds to me like you're probably leaning over too far, and it's causing you to put a lot more stretch into your Achilles than you need. I would recommend that you pick your knees up more and try to keep your posture more upright. And in respect to the terrain, uh, whether it be uneven or rocky, a lot of what I'd like to see people do is focus on movement accuracy drills. Get your feet up off the ground. And I would suggest you start working on rocky terrain that is on flat surface before you challenge yourself with uphill running. The other thing is you just... You want to make sure that you stay on top of your stretching, myofascial release, get out the foam roller, dig into those calf muscles every now and then to make sure everything is supple and stay well hydrated. A lot of times, a lot of this problem with the Achilles has got to do with just not getting enough fluids into the system and you're drying up. Okay, leading into some of these questions, I think it's important that I start out by apologizing up front if I butcher your name. Some of these names are a little challenging for me. I don't know. I'm not that sharp. And let's go with this one. We've got Alicia Delosios. Delosio. I'm sorry, Alicia. You forgive me, I'm sure. She asks, what is the best off-season training plan to build a solid running base for beginners? Well, a good solid running base. Let's define a good solid running base. First of all, we want to ensure that we're running properly. When you say beginners, we want to make sure that we are not making mistakes with the way we run before we concern ourselves with how much running we actually do. And I would also suggest that you keep it slow, keep it low, keep your heart rate down, focus on ground contact, work on cadence, and then progressively allow to build the amount of time you spend running. I don't get too wrapped up in mileage. I tell people mileage is a reward for doing the proper things in training. So the answer to the question is keep your heart rate down. Stay aerobic as long as possible. When you get your base up to a comfortable place, then you can get a little more creative with it. If you're trying to keep your fitness up while you're slowing down, I recommend doing some hill repeats, about 20% of the total volume that you put into your training each week. It's time, it's not miles, Alicia. Thank you so much, and again, I apologize for butchering your name. All right, this is a pretty interesting question, and we run into this problem an awful lot when we travel. This is Chelsea Michelle, and she's asking, what ways to train for incline or climbing when you do not have access to an incline trainer or mountains on a consistent basis? And I run into this a lot. We were out to Louisiana, did a clinic in Baton Rouge, 
And it turns out a few people down that way, Samantha Clark Galino, who was one of the folks that attended one of our clinics, chimed in, same question. Matt, uh, Matt, I'm going to... I'm going to screw up your last name, uh, Nugin, and he's also from Louisiana, attended our clinic in Dallas recently, great guy. So here's the thing, in the absence of incline, if you don't have a place to train this way, I think that you could supplement very nicely with strength training. Do step-ups, use some weighted step-ups, and do repeats. Use high-volume, moderate-weight work, do squats, do lunges, do dynamic movements, but you can supplement the need for incline training with weight. You just got to get an overload. Whether you're going up a hill or whether you're on flat ground, it's all a function of gravity. If you're pushing load up against gravity, it works very nicely. I can tell you back in the day when I was training for the Big Sur Marathon, being a big guy, wanting to get my mileage up, and fearful of downhill running because it was rough on my knees because I ran like crap back in that time. I did a ton of strength training when I wasn't running. Never ran a stinking hill, and I blazed up the hills at Big Sur, which were some pretty challenging long hills. So I guess my answer would be use your weights. Do some strength training. Set out to do some pretty serious work, high repetition, moderate amounts of weight, and just develop your muscular endurance, and it will, it will help you a ton. The other thing that works, if you have access to it, is find a hotel or a building with uh, multiple floors and a staircase. Let them know what you're doing. Show up a couple times a week and do repeats on the staircases. That's a nice way to do it. If you don't get arrested, I suppose, it'll work out just fine. All right, I got Larry Caldwell, and he says, I love all your stuff. Use it faithfully. Pass it on to my training buddies. It all works. I'm three months post-ACL surgery, cleared to run again. What are your thoughts on getting back into it? Doctor says I can do my first event in October. Wow. Doctor says October? That's a long ways off from now. ACL surgery you know, it's a dicey thing depending on the nature of the surgery you had. If they took the tendon from a cadaver or a prosthetic, your recovery time's a little quicker. Uh, if they took it from your patellar tendon, the recovery time's a little bit longer. I don't know the details here, but you could get back to work. You know, it's a function of making good ground contact. If you're not making a lot of mistakes with the way you move, and you land solidly on, on a real good foundation, there should be no stress on the ACL. The anterior cruciate ligament is generally most affected by shear force fore and aft. And if you're not overstriding, not heel striking, not making a bunch of mistakes like that, you should be able to get back in the game pretty quickly. I'm sure you know Ashley Seeger. She also had ACL surgery. I've had her at my lab. We've got to work on her. And we were talking about three, four months in before we started running. And she's doing pretty well right now with it. I think she's going to be back in the game a whole lot quicker than what your doctors say. So I guess my advice to you would be to make sure you become a staunch advocate of your proper running mechanics. That's going to make a great big difference for you. Thanks a lot for listening, and, and I appreciate that you're paying attention to my stuff, Larry.
I've got Brian Ginger Spartan, and he says, Richard Diaz, I would love to hear your take on a proper way to break up strength versus run training per week. For me, I have a big strength background and have just gotten into running because of OCR. I know I have to get my weight down to be faster, prevent injuries to joints while running. Unfortunately, I lose too much strength. I become slower on obstacles, but too much weight and muscle memory is not good. Your thoughts? All right, Brian. Um, I run into this a lot, and I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Hunter McIntyre. He's a big fella himself. And we always wrestle with the prospect of trying to gain running skill, speed, relative to strength. His body likes to be bigger. His body likes to be stronger. And when he sacrifices his strength to gain speed, it becomes a balancing act. So I think if you've got a really good base of strength, you're going to sacrifice some of the strength, but I don't know that it's going to be such a big sacrifice that it's going to be offset by the gains you get from your running talent. At the end of the day, in OCR, running wins. If you can run well, you've got a better shot at getting through these races quicker than if you just have a lot of strength. That has been proven to be the case on more times than not. Again, of course, it depends on the length of the race. If you're into sprints, your strength is more important. You bust through the obstacles quicker. You don't have as much running to do. You're all good. But if you're going to go longer, you're going to need to be a little lighter, and you're going to need to have that endurance, and you're going to need to have that running skill. So it really is an individual thing from person to person. I try not to have this boilerplate approach to developing strength programs for guys that are trying to do OCR. It really becomes a function of how strong they are going in, how capable they are with the obstacles relative to the weakness they may have with their running skill. So some guys, I like them to back way off the heavy strength work. And some guys, I need them to bust up their volume. So I try not to be evasive, and I don't know that I have the right answer for you. I'd have to know you better. But just kind of a broad stroke answer to your question, I would say it sounds to me like even though you may perceive that you're giving up some of your strength, there's enough base strength there. If you're really talented at the obstacles, you're going to get through it. You may notice you're not as strong as you typically are, but if you gain your speed and your endurance at the cost of some of that strength, you're probably going to be at a better place if OCR is what you're hoping to get better at. Best of luck to you, Brian. Okay, I've got Joshua Terhun. Terhun. What running drills do you recommend and how do you build them into your daily routine? Good question, Joshua. Running drills. I like to see work broken up into essentially three segments. What you do aerobically, what you do anaerobically, both of which are metabolic consequences of work, and then what you do to develop your running skill or what I like to refer to as motor skill development training. I like to see on average 60% of the energy dedicated to aerobic conditioning, 20% to anaerobic conditioning, and the balance 20% dedicated to skill work, and I'm referring to time. And the type of running drills that I do are about developing speed without sacrificing form. It's really, really, really important 
that when you try to find speed, that you don't make your mistakes on your way to finding speed. And that becomes a function of some very precise drills in where you're focusing on proper mechanics, proper cadence, proper posture while you try to assault speed. Turns out, Joshua, I happen to have written a book about this type of thing, and I'm going to send you a copy. What I need you to do is message me and give me your email address, and I'll get a copy out to you uh, as quick as I can. But thanks a lot for the question, and I hope that the book will serve you. Andrew Alport is written, and he's asking, he said that he's heard some elites mention that you should really dig your heels in for traction on downhills. Is the potential increased traction worth the extra beating your body will take during a race? How do you train downhills best while preserving your body slash form? Fewer, more aggressive heel strike sessions or slower, potentially stride correct downhills? All right, so let me see if I could take this one step at a time. Number one, if you're digging your heels in on a downhill, that suggests to me that you're taking a pretty good hit up the kinetic chain. That's going to be costly. Over the long term, you're probably going to jack up your knees, possibly your hips back. It's just not a good idea to run on your heels regardless of where you might be. But the idea of digging your heels in suggests to me that A, you're slipping, and B, your focus is to land on your heels anyway. So I suggest that when you're on a downhill, you should still be on your midfoot. If you have the right type of shoe that has the type of traction you need, shouldn't be a problem, but you want to keep your feet as near to your center of mass as possible, which is probably going to cause you to have a more aggressive gait, meaning that your cadence is going to be up well over 180 strides per minute going downhill, depending on the degree of the, the slope. Uh, what's the answer here? Um, he says fewer, more aggressive heel strike sessions or slower, and he's got in parentheses, potentially stride correct downhills. I'm not too sure what he's asking, but let's just go ahead and say this. Get off your heels, get on your midfoot, increase your stride frequency, try to keep your feet close to your center mass, keep your posture perpendicular to the mountain, hill, or whatever elevation you're going up and down. Okay, we got one more from Andrew, and uh, I think that's actually two questions built into one, but let's go ahead and do them anyway. The question is, he says, a typical calf cramping issue during the Las Vegas Super. He says that his guess is that it was due to all the soft sand running during the beginning of the race. And he's asking, does this type of terrain cause stride mechanic issues, and what can be done to avoid it? Training and during race suggestions, please. So first of all, I don't think the cramping was due to the type of terrain that you were running on. Certainly you could be fatigued and more regionally fatigued depending on the way you're running. But I would think that the problem would be more likely a electrolyte imbalance I would suggest, incidentally, a product by CarboPro called Metasalt. Pretty good stuff. Uh, I've used it with a couple of clients, and they're saying it's working out pretty well for them. But um, at the end of the day, 
you don't really have different types of stride mechanics. You're either running well or you're not. And if you're running well, the cost factor for the way you're running is going to be less in all circumstances. And the second question was, can high resistance standing sessions on a trainer, he's talking about a bike trainer, simulate uphill running that people use to give their joints a break from the impact of up or downhill running? What does this method not address? What would you recommend to get the most out of these sessions and make them applicable to hill running as possible? Well, when you stand up on a bike, you're clearly putting force right up into your hip, and it's more quad dominant than it is like a hamstring type of a thing. I think running uphill tends to get into your hamstrings a little bit um, and more into your glutes. Suffice to say that standing up on the trainer is going to help to maintain or even develop your strength, and it may pay off when you're doing some hill running. Would I depend on it? No, nah, I don't think I would. Um, will it give you a break? Yeah, I'm sure it will. How much of it should you do? I guess it's a matter of how much do you need a break. It's supplemental training. The best thing for developing your ability to go on a hill is to go on a hill. And um, again, if you're a little worked and you feel like you need to supplement, maybe what you need is a day or two off. But in the absence of that, yes, I agree with you that if you get on the bike and stand up on the bike while you're on a trainer, you're going to develop pretty much the same type of muscles that you use when you're running on a hill. Okay, I got a question from Matt Campione. And this is interesting because I hear this question a lot from a lot of elite athletes. And I've worked with Matt on a couple different occasions. And by the way, Matt has impeccable running mechanics. And he's developed them over the course of the last year since we started working together. And I've noticed some pretty dramatic improvements, not only in his running mechanics, but also in his cardiorespiratory performance. Matt's VO2 score has grown dramatically over the course of the year that we had uh, some work together. He asks, how do you determine which distance races that you're best suited for? From really short courses to events like World's Toughest Mudder, a lot of us coming into the sport have little to no running background and have no way to gauge what we are best at or genetically leaning towards. Well, the advantage that you have, Matt, is that we have done clinical evaluations on you, and we can see how your body responds to work, which is quite an advantage. And in your case, if I were to consult my crystal ball, I would say that I like you for middle distance. I like you for the super. I think that your speed is probably not as good as it could be when it comes to winning those distances, but I think your weight relative to your speed and sustainable paces are going to look better in a super. And not to suggest that you couldn't do well in a beast because, again, it's a function of weight and caloric expense. I think you're pretty strong there as well. So if I had to put you in a category, I like you between super and I like you even at the beast. But uh, getting longer than that, uh, I don't know. We'd have to test the waters a little bit. But if you were my racehorse, I like you at a super. That's where I'd put you. And to get back to the general question, how do you determine 
Well, I think a good place to start is having a VO2 test done and uh, just looking at the economy, efficiency, the way you're moving, and the metabolic cost of work in your case, and it's really pointing towards the type of athlete you're going to be. Matt has a follow-up question. He's asking, how long realistically does it take someone who had no endurance background but now has proper training to get to a level of being able to compete with the pros? And he prefaces it by saying not necessarily Atkins level, but all the guys underneath that level. Laughs out loud. Well, i got to be honest with you, Matt. I think you're probably pretty damn close to where you need to be right now. I think if you get into the season properly, get your, your base built up, maintain your strength, focus on the way you move, you're there. I think the best thing for you to do is get in the fire. Get out there with these guys and rub shoulders with them. Don't be afraid of them. You might surprise yourself. You might surprise them. I think your speed is getting pretty darn close to where it needs to be to compete with these guys, again, at that super distance. So uh, I would not fear it. I'd get out there and get in it and find out because uh, I think you're there. Uh, respectively speaking towards how long it takes, you know, that's individual. I mean, it depends on the individual. depends on where they came from. depends on what raw talent they have. Depends on a lot of variability that I couldn't just say, well, it takes six months or it takes a year or it takes five years. Hard to say. Very, very general question. But, you know, again, knowing you, knowing where you're at right now, I think you're pretty ripe for it in 2017. So uh, keep plugging, buddy. I think you're going to get it done. All right, I got Peter Folletto. I know Peter as well. Peter is a physical therapist. I think he's based in Utah. Forgive me, Peter, if I screwed that up. But Peter's question is, why don't runners train their feet when they beat them into the ground every day? And he's asking about Viper vibrating training for recovery versus rolling everything because it hurts, how to train breathing most effectively, what breathing patterns to use during uphill, bad downhill, wind slowing down, wind sprinting, how to tie your shoe. I mean, he's got a lot of questions here. <laughs> so let's just kind of focus on the primary question, which I like the best. And he's got a good question. Why don't people spend more time developing their feet strength and just developing and caring for their feet in common? I'm a really, really strong advocate of barefoot training. And what I mean by that is when you're doing strength training, when you have the opportunity Take your shoes off. Get barefoot. Develop your fundamental, natural foot strength. Spend some time on your feet. Self-massage. Work that great toe. Having flexibility in the great toe is extremely important. When you start to get arthritic or you start getting real tight in that region, it really plays havoc on your running gait. It could be a serious problem. It leads into all sorts of other problems up the chain. So I like to take care of my feet. I use uh, the Rock Blade. For those of you who aren't familiar with that, you can look it up. Rock Tape sells it. But the Rock Blade is a nice tool to get in and work the fascia on the bottom of your feet. I do it daily. And in the absence of that, you could roll your foot on a golf ball, a lacrosse ball, various devices. He had suggested the Viper which is a vibrating roller, and I own one of those as well, and I found that to be pretty interesting. But at the end of the day, 
you really do need to take care of your feet, and I agree with him, not too many people give it the attention it deserves. If you want to be a strong athlete, it's all from the ground up, folks. You've got to take care of your feet. Get them out of those cushy shoes. Get your feet on the ground. I'm not suggesting that you should be running on pavement or concrete barefoot. I think that's a major no-no, but absolutely. I have my clients at least once a week, about 30 minutes on an infield of a football field, and I have them take the shoes off and run naturally, I refer to it as, which is basically grounding yourself, getting your body to react to ground forces and develop a solid foundation to work from. Brian Curl, he writes, what is a good rule of thumb for recovery time after completing 50 miles, 100 mic, 200 mile, 500K before doing another race? I'm assuming that Mike was supposed to be miles as a typo. That's a really good question. I think the smart thing to do is pay attention to the way your body's responding to everything you do. When you're racing, when you're training, look at the recovery rates you're getting between sessions. You might find out that when you go long, you start to develop a formula that seems to work for you. Some people require much less time than others to recover. If you notice that every time you go out, your legs feel heavy and you can't seem to get your heart rate up or your heart rate's through the roof no matter what you do, you're probably not ready to go back out and do another race. So intuitively and respective to the information that you gather over time, you're going to be a lot smarter about your approach to training and the timing between races that you need to take. I don't know what else to tell you. I just really like metrics, and I think that when you start paying attention to heart rate response and the training outcomes over the course of all of your training, you're going to be a much smarter athlete. Got a question from Chris Polito, and Chris is one of my clients. And his question is, most, if not all, races are in the early morning. Is there any truth to the notion that training in the morning is more efficient because the actual races are in the morning? And would an athlete that trains in the afternoon or evening do as well at a race that starts at 7 a.m. as they would if they trained in the morning? Well, I think you know the answer to that question, Chris, and I know the dilemma is that you tend to have to do your training in the evenings. And at the end of the day, when the races are in the morning, it's a function of what they call sports specificity or what I like to call challenge specificity. I like my athletes to train at the same time of day that they plan to compete. And I realize you don't have any control over when the races occur and probably don't have any control over the time of day that you're able to train because life gets in the way. It just is what it is, bro. When you get closer to a race, Try to spend more time getting out there and doing something at that time of day. Even if it's a little something, just get into a rhythm of getting up and getting active at that time of day. And if you're already on the road and working or what have you, you know, it just sucks for you. I'm sorry to be the, the messenger, bud. But, uh, um, yeah, it does matter. If you race in the morning, you want to train in the morning. Okay, he's got another follow-up question. And his question is, can you still heel strike at 180 strides per minute? Or stated another way, is it harder to heel strike at the correct cadence? I guess the, the latter part of the question is probably correct. I know that when I have people sending me metrics in my training 
If I see outcomes of 160, 165 strides per minute, I know that they're overstriding. I know that they're more likely heel striking. Could be landing on their forefoot, but they're definitely overstriding. The closer you get to 180 strides per minute, the more likely you are to have your stride closer to your center of mass. And yes, you probably could, could work it out to heel strike at 180 strides per minute. And it uh, probably won't hurt you, but I just don't think it's nearly as performance-oriented as landing on your midfoot properly. Got a question from Gene. Sorry, Gene, I'm going to screw it up, I'm sure. Quisium? 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 And his question is, what should I expect to learn about myself by spending a day with you, Coach Richard Diaz, at the Secret Lab? Well, that's an interesting question. I have a lot of people that come out and visit with me, and I like to believe that when they go home, they're pretty well lit up with information. And if you've never had anybody perform a VO2 on you, if you've never had your resting metabolism assessed, if you've never had anybody look at your running gait and help to guide you through proper running mechanics, those are the types of things you can expect to have happen if you come and visit me. When you walk out of here, you're not going to be the same person that walked in. If you employ the information that I provide you, it's going to make a big difference in your performance. Okay, I got Michael Martinez, and he's asking if I'm running four times a week, two to three days of which are Yancey and some CrossFit sprinkled in, how often should or can I get into a cold tub, hot tub, what are your thoughts on ice baths, compression therapy, basically thoughts on ways to recover? What do you actually think works versus what does not? That's an interesting question as well. I can tell you that every workout that I throw at Hunter McIntyre, he jumps into my freezing cold pool immediately after the workout. Regardless of how disgusting the pool might be relative to Santa Ana winds blowing all kinds of crap in it, he gets in that cold water, he swears by it. Now, how often is a good idea to get into cold water? Realize that the function of the cold water is to reduce inflammation. If you feel like you need to reduce inflammation, the answer is cold. If you feel like the muscles need recovery, the answer is heat. So to decide whether to be in a hot tub or whether to get cold, it's really a function of the way your body is reacting to the work you're doing to it. Now, you asked about compression wear. I'm a fan of compression wear. I think it works. Now, what they suggest it does, improve VO2, uh, improve circulation. I don't know how much of that I want to buy into, but I do believe it dampens vibration during activity. It minimizes the amount of shock that the muscles are taking as you are running, doing whatever it is that you're doing. I wear compression wear. My favorite compression wear company is Two Times You, company out of Australia. They do an amazing job with their compression wear. I know there's some others out there, but yes to compression wear, yes to cold in the right circumstances, yes to heat in the right circumstances. You don't need to overdo any of it. Ryan Wisniewski has written, and he's asking about aerobic conditioning. He wants to know, what should I do if I find my heart rate is continually getting higher than my target cost? 
This would be assuming that I am already maintaining a stride frequency of 180 and that my speed is slow enough and slowing down more only increases the cost to maintain cadence. Along with this, is it a bad idea to work on aerobic conditioning in an area with hills knowing the incline may increase your heart rate well beyond your aerobic threshold? Okay, so Ryan, here's the thing. When you think in terms of aerobic conditioning, think of it like a spa treatment. You want to bathe your musculature in oxygen. The more oxygen you can deliver to the working muscles, the more you're going to have an outcome where your body gets better at being aerobic. If you find that your heart rate starts to climb over time, it's commonly because your blood is thickening due to dehydration. Your viscosity of your blood is a little stickier. It takes more to push it through the heart. That's one reason why that could happen. You're heating up. And as you heat up, your cost factors are going to go up along with it. So it's important that you employ a really strong hydration strategy while you're out for these long runs. If you need to slow down to a walk, it is what it is, because at the end of the day, the focus of that workout is to become aerobic and to treat yourself aerobically. So whatever it is that you need to do to stay aerobic, given that that's the theme for the day, you do it. And I guess it's a no-brainer. If the hills are increasing your heart rate, it's starting to have influence over the outcome that you're hoping to achieve. So, no, you don't get in the hills unless you can support the work aerobically when you're intending to be aerobic. All right, so I've got time for a few more of these, and I want to remind you that I said that I was taking them as they came. So the order in which these questions were delivered is the order in which I've been taking the questions. If you get left off, I apologize. We'll try to address these questions, if you care to, at a later podcast. But uh, for whatever it's worth, I want to just say up front, I appreciate you guys showing interest. makes my heart happy to see that so many people are so enthusiastic about the work they're doing. Sarah Butcher Roxica. She wants to know if the VO2 max that many of the watches now show how are these calculated? Is it compared by pace against heart rate? Is it taking terrain into account, running hills versus flats? I think that's a really good question, too. First of all, let me just say this out front. I would not put a lot of stock in what my watch says in respect to my VO2 max. The only way to effectively measure VO2 max is through a direct gas analysis. You can't do it with a watch. It's a prediction. And let me go a step further and say that even if it was accurate, what difference does it make? You're, if, unless you're training at a percentage of your VO2 max, which all by itself will lead you down Primrose Lane because it becomes a function of what your threshold is. That's what makes the most amount of difference, and that can vary relative to your VO2 scores. So I would leave that alone, focus on heart rate response, and do what you can to get as close to accurate with your threshold information. That's where all the magic's going to come from. Jeremy Catapult has chimed in. He's got a couple questions here. First one being, how difficult is it to maximize your potential while training for short distance and ultra distance races 
simultaneously? Is it better to train for one first and then do maintenance work for that while training for the other distance? Well, clearly these events are polar opposites and they require different energy systems to be most effective. In the shorter distance events, you're going to really do a lot of high-speed lactate threshold challenging work, where at ultra distances, you're really going to be working on priming your aerobic performance. And so at the end of the day, those are pretty much polar opposites. The way you approach an ultra versus the way you approach a sprint, two different animals for sure. So I guess you've already alluded to the answer, which was, you focus on one event first, and then you work towards the other. The question would be, which do you do first? In my mind, I think the best way to approach it would be to work towards developing your ultra-distance event, and then once you've got that under your belt, start honing on your speed, because then you're coming away from that big aerobic base, and that's going to be a left-handed complement to improving your lactate tolerance anyway. So that's how I'd approach it. I'd do the ultra first, get that base in, and then start honing in on your speed to do the shorter stuff. All right, so I still got a ton of questions here, and I just don't have the time to hit them all. So what I'm doing is I'm kind of gleaning through them, and I'm looking for one that I found to be pretty interesting. And, uh, I mean, not that they're not all really interesting, but this is a pretty good one, and I thought it would be interesting for you guys to hear. So the question is from a guy by the name of Mark Rockwall. Interesting, given the, the nature of the question. He says, I'd like to learn about how to determine which energy system is taxed when a fatigue wall hits. This is in reference to better optimize what carb-protein-fats ratio I should consume pre-race or pre-training and racing. All right, Mark. First of all, when you talk about the wall and you talk about fatigue, these potentially could occur at different times for different reasons. So perception of fatigue could be manifested in a lot of different ways. And the common wall that we speak of relates to what is called the glycogen depletion model. In essence, what that suggests is that you're basically running out of sugar and having done so, you can no longer continue. You have fatigue. Well, if that be the case all the time, how could you account for someone finding fatigue in a shorter distance event where clearly they have not exhausted their resources where carbohydrate or glycogen stores are an issue? Our body shuts down for a variety of reasons. And I would reference you to a book written by Dr. Timothy Noakes, which is the lore of running, in where he speaks of what he refers to as the central governor theory. And it's a function of the way our central nervous system reacts to the things that we do to it. The primary goal being to keep us from harm's way. And if this theory has any validity, then it kind of tosses out the concern in most cases of the ratios of substrates you should consume relative to the way you plan to race or train. I think that too much is offered towards higher ratios or lesser ratios of carbohydrate 
fats or protein. If you want to stay relatively safe, regardless of the type of training you do, I recommend about 60% of your total intake should come from carbohydrate, 20% come from protein, and the same coming from fat. The question is not so much at this point whether the ratios are correct. It's a function of how much you need to consume relative to the energy you're burning. So if you plan to train, for example, three hours in a given day, obviously your caloric needs are greater than if you're only going to train for an hour. But that doesn't mean that the ratios need to change. It just means that the volume of the food you're going to consume is more demanding. This, incidentally, is one of the reasons why we've started to add resting metabolic assessments to our clinics when we're on the road because very few people have a strong understanding of how much they should actually be consuming. They talk a lot about the ratios. They talk about you know, whether they want to be fat adapted or whether they're carb monsters, but it never speaks in respect to how many calories the body really needs to be optimal. And by doing these tests, we get a really strong handle on what the caloric needs are. And then from that, we can feather in the percentages of any particular substrate relative to the demands that are at stake. All right, so I promised to give an award to someone relative to the questions that they offered. And I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to wait till tomorrow and I'm going to listen to the show. And then relative to the question that I thought was the best, I will contact you and provide you with something really, really cool. And uh, it'll make it all worthwhile. Thanks again for all the questions that came in. And by all means, if you're curious about our clinics, where they're going to be, when they're going to be, or if they may be in your neighborhood, visit the naturalrunningcoach.net. You'll get all the information you need there. And or if you want to reach out to find out whether there's a plausible opportunity to be in your neighborhood, just hit me up on Facebook or drop me a message off of the site. You guys have a wonderful day. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.